Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a podcast at the intersection of politics and dialogue. Typically, we are a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, but you're hearing this episode because it means that our second baby was born. And we are taking a moment, but that doesn't mean that we are going to leave you empty-handed. We are going to be featuring for the next few weeks a very exciting project that I am very excited to share with the world after many years of work and effort on my part. And that is a project about reducing gun violence without legislation. So this is a project that... I began because I was very frustrated with seeing time after time all these instances of gun violence without any meaningful effort taken in the political sphere to actually reach a solution, to reach real solutions. Now, there have been some solutions at the local level, at the state level, but at the federal level, things haven't been really making any traction. And I thought, well, there's always a lot of energy out there to try to solve gun violence after one of these terrible mass shooting incidents. But that energy is often siphoned into political efforts that end up not having a lot of change and not actually making a real difference. And I thought, well, what if we could take that energy to make change, to deal with this issue, and put it towards something that might actually solve the issue, might actually reduce gun violence meaningfully. So I wanted to understand gun violence better, to understand what kind of levers we could use outside of the political sphere to reduce gun violence. So I needed to do a lot of research, and I also needed to come up with some solutions, come up with some ideas, and test those ideas, and see what could actually work. You can find this project online at solvingguns.org, a new website I just built, which will house this chapter and ultimately all the chapters over the coming weeks, as well as video versions of these chapters and all the sources for the 2,000 plus pages of facts and statistics that I leaned on for this project. So I'm excited to share this journey with you, a journey that ultimately I believe is a journey of hope, even though this is a difficult subject, a difficult issue to think about, I really think that if we learn more about it and we think more about it and we try to find solutions to it, this can be a hopeful endeavor and not just a dark topic to explore. So why don't we begin? I have divided this into little chapters, so each week we'll go into one of these. And let's start at the beginning with an idea of what we're even dealing with. What do we mean when we talk about gun violence? What is the impact of gun violence? So guns kill a lot of people every year. The numbers vary year by year, and our pandemic world has exacerbated some of these issues, but about 38,000 people die every year. 38,000. Now, to put that in perspective, that's equal to about 12 9-11s every single year. It's been estimated that one in four Americans knows someone who has died of gun violence, and of course many more know people who've been the victims but have survived. And the economic impact, now not enough is talked about on the economic sphere, but the economic impact of the loss of all of this life to the U.S. economy adds up to $44 billion a year. That's 30 times the profits of the entire gun industry. To get a sense of what that looks like, $44 billion, consider that you could build the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, not just once, but 29 times over every single year. We could build an entire city of the future for the cost that gun violence exacts on the American economy every year. Of all of this impact then, what created it? What, what was the weapon? What was the source of this violence? Well, it's little bullets, little pellets of metal fired from guns. 38,000 little projectiles, 38,000 little pellets of metal. What would that look like? What would that amount of bullets look like to cause all this devastation? Well, let's try to get a handle on it. So 90% of all the bullets made in the United States are made of lead, which is pretty heavy and dense. But even still, the average bullet 
weighs just about 0.16 ounces. I looked this up. There are 16 ounces per pound, which works out to 100 bullets per pound. So how much lead are we talking about then? What's the weight of 38,000 bullets? It is, unbelievably, just 593 pounds. 593 pounds of lead. That's less weight than the average wrecking ball. Wrecking balls, the ones used to take down buildings, they weigh about 1,000 to 12,000 pounds. So we're talking many times smaller. We're talking just around 600 pounds. And because lead is so dense, 593 pounds is just 14 inches in diameter. Just over a foot from one side to the other. A one-foot ball of lead, about the size of an overinflated dodgeball. Think about that. $44 billion in damage and 38,000 lives lost. Gone. Every single year. Could you imagine a little ball like that wreaking so much havoc? Like a demonic snitch flying around, crashing through buildings, taking down a dozen skyscrapers, murdering indiscriminately 38,000 people every year. What would we do faced with an enemy like that? We'd marshal every resource to bring it under control, to stop it. And the moment we did, we'd lock it up, bury it deep under a mountain somewhere behind 100 titanium vaults and 24-hour guard. And yet every year, a new ball of lead is minted, a little one-foot-tall machine of death. And we do nothing to stop it. Of course, the easiest way to stop it is also the hardest. Ban guns, right? We've heard it a million times from people on the street, from liberals and people who are frustrated, who have no interest in dealing with guns, being around guns, hate guns. Just ban it. But we can't do that. We know that. Too many people stand in the way. Some for good reason, some for bad reason, but too many people. The politics just aren't there. But if politics won't work, let's try to think of some ways that will. How do we solve the gun issue without legislation. That's the challenge here. And the approach is this. Nobody wants anybody to die or get hurt. Let's find ways to avoid that. But ways that genuinely enhance what people actually do want. Sport, protection for ourselves and our families, a sense of safety and security, a sense of fun in the power of these tools. Are there ways that we can make these things better while making the thing that nobody wants to happen less likely to happen? I think so. So let's take a look. Let's fix this thing, finally. Let's stop gun violence. So let's begin with personal safety. The NRA likes to say that guns don't kill people, people kill people. True enough. So let's start with people. Why do people own guns? A few reasons. For protection, for sport, for hunting, for work, and, honestly, for criminal activity. Protection is actually the number one reason. It's number one by a lot. In fact, 67% of gun owners say the major reason for owning their gun is protection. One in about every three households holds a gun. So if you're looking at the average street in America, think about that. One in three has a gun. And most of them keep the gun not because they're gun nuts, as some like to deem them. More likely, they're family nuts, nuts who like to protect themselves and their family, which isn't a nutty thing at all. Ask one of those gun owners why they bought their gun, and you'll get some pretty consistent answers. Fear of crime, fear of personal harm, injury. It's easy to belittle the idea of owning something so powerful. But there's a powerful case to be made that these fears are real. Crime does happen. Personal harm, injury. It's true. These aren't impossible events. But here's the thing. Actually, two things. There's a lot, and I mean a lot less crime than there used to be back in the 90s. And number two, guns actually really suck at protecting you. And by really suck, I don't mean that they only work a little bit. I mean they work backwards. They actually have been proven to make your home more dangerous, not less. These two facts are actually super exciting for our cause of reducing gun violence, because if we can convince people who own guns for protection to either A, not have a need for protection, or more likely B, use something better for protection, 
we could potentially eliminate the majority of the guns out there. The majority reason, just gone. With fewer guns and fewer people having access to these lethal weapons, we'd see fewer gun deaths, fewer mass shootings, fewer murders, and fewer suicides. So let's take a look at these things and see what's possible. All sorts of measures of gun violence have gone down since the 1990s. Reported, the reported violent crime rate in the United States has dropped pretty significantly, almost by half, from 1990 to 2016. The number of reported cases of property crime in the U.S. also went down significantly from 1990 to 2016. And crime overall also went down during that period. Now, we have seen a bit of a spike during the pandemic years, but this is a very strange period for lots of things. There's no reason to believe that the recent crime increases that were evident during the pandemic are going to totally break the trend of crime reduction that has been happening since the year 1990. On almost every measure, this country is way safer in recent years than it has been in past decades. In fact, there's a greater chance of a person getting struck by lightning at some point in their entire lifetime than of being murdered in the next year. And you're twice as likely to die in a car accident than at the hands of another, and twice as likely to die of falling. Get the idea? Crime isn't as scary as it used to be. And you should be less afraid of crime than a whole list of other deadly things, like staircases. Yeah, forget about open carrying a gun holstered to your hip. You'd be safer if you open carried a helmet strapped to your head for going up and down stairs. Just as a little aside, it's worth considering how many lives are saved by elevators every year. Elevators are way more effective at protecting lives than guns ever will be. At least guns in the home. Obviously, guns used by the military are a different matter. Of course, elevators and guns are protecting you from different dangers, and we have to be honest about that. One is against falling downstairs, and one is against crime. But all these crime numbers, all these stats, are not very convincing to people when they're trying to protect their families. We have to be realistic about this. When the sun goes down and the house is darkened, when you're lying in bed and the only sound is the sound of your own breathing, it doesn't matter what the crime rate is, honestly. It doesn't matter that the staircase 20 feet away is a greater lethal threat. You worry. What if? You wonder, am I ready? To keep worry from filling the silence, and I've felt that worry, I fill the room with music. Every night music. My dad, when I was growing up, he kept a baseball bat under his bed. He was six feet eight inches tall, but the bat was there just in case. Others lock the door to the room or sleep with the TV on. And some, well, more than some, we know the number, 75 million Americans sleep with a gun at home. Loaded in a drawer or locked on an upper shelf, it waits in the dark. In fact, 38% of all gun owners say there's a gun that's loaded and easily accessible to them at all times when they're at home, even when they're sleeping ready to be snatched at the, the sound of a broken window or the slam of a car door, ready to be fired at a shout in the night or a scream, ready for anything, a protection against fear and harm, the promise of a good night's sleep. These are real things. But let's play through the scenario a bit to see just how effective a gun is at protecting you and your family. First, it's not likely that you'll actually have a home invasion. It's far more likely that the gun sitting in your drawer never gets fired. Not once, not ever, to protect you. But on the road of likeliness, there are a few more stops before we get to that firing for protection image, the image that so many people have in their heads when they buy their gun to protect their home. If the gun is in your drawer, loaded, or even in a locked safe, which is where it should be, it's likely that the next time it fires will be at you, by you. It's a depressing thought, but unfortunately an all-too-common one. It's estimated that 11 to 16% of people contemplate suicide, seriously contemplate it, at some point in their lifetime. About 5% of the general population actually attempts it. Most of those attempts don't result in a death. Just one out of every 25 attempts kills. 
But if a gun is close by, it's far more likely that the attempt becomes an actual death. This is a big deal, because most people who attempt a suicide but don't complete it never go on to try again. I'll say that again. Most people who attempt a suicide but don't complete it never go on to try again. If you attempt with something that's less lethal than a firearm, you'll have another chance at life. Not so for guns. This isn't a small thing. Guns kill the person holding the gun far more than they kill the person on the other side of it. So the next time you see a handgun, consider that if they were designed based on who they actually hurt, then most guns would be designed backwards. But of course, if they did look like this, probably no one would buy them. So probably the gun will never be fired. And the next likely firing in violence is to kill you. But a little further down the road of likeliness, and we reach another possibility that when moving the gun, you shoot yourself in the foot. Shooting yourself in the foot, which, remember, is an accident, happens. And 43% of the time, those who shoot themselves by accident shoot themselves in the leg or the foot. Home invasion is the greatest fear. But therein lies the greatest fallacy of gun protection. Because most of the time, you actually won't be home if your home is invaded. A study by the sociologist Thomas Rapetto asked 97 convicted burglars how they targeted homes for invasion. The answer? Every single one of them said their primary concern was finding homes that were unoccupied. A gun is no protection in an unoccupied home. In fact, a gun is just one more target of a home invasion. Yeah, guns themselves are stolen by burglars far more than they're fired at burglars. And why wouldn't they be? Guns are expensive and positively perfect for the black market. The Bureau of Justice Statistics estimates that about 172,000 guns are stolen during household burglaries every year. That's enough guns fired all at once to win the Battle of Gettysburg. Consider, though, another possibility. If the gun is meant to protect your family, what happens when your family is home, but you're not? If an intruder breaks in, what happens when literally you and your gun, your great protection, aren't there to protect? Those are some pretty giant holes in the guns for protection of home and hearth theory. But let's follow this branching tree of possibility a few branches down. If you are, if you actually are home when an intruder breaks in in the middle of the night, guess what? You're sleeping. Think back. Think about security guards you've seen at banks and airports, security guards at clubs and concerts, at schools and courthouses, at Disneyland. Nobody lets security guards sleep on the job, because no matter how armed they are, sleeping arms are unarmed arms. If you had a store with a security guard that was sleeping, would you pay that security guard? Getting a gun for protection at home is like giving a sleeping security guard a bigger gun. Just imagine it, a bigger gun on a guard's sleeping holster. Do you feel safer? In fact, answer me this. Would you rather have a security guard unarmed who's awake or one who is armed but is asleep? It's not even a contest. The awake guard can call for help. He can close the safe. He can throw shoes at the attacker. And in the final analysis, shoes are a more effective weapon than sleep. I think we can agree. But let's pretend for a moment that you do wake up, that you hear a window breaking in the kitchen or the living room, you're not sure which. You wake up and you hear an intruder. What do you do? Reach for the gun in the drawer, if it is in the drawer. Climb to the shelf in your closet and fumble for the safe. What do you do? Do you go after your gun? Or do you reach for your phone and dial 911? Do you turn on the light? Gripping the cold handle of the gun, shaking and feel your way into the hallway? Do you shout into the dark of the house, shrieking that you have a gun? Do you rush into the rooms of your children and lock the door behind you? Do you fire off a warning shot and stand in the echo of that shot as the room pulses with the burn of gunpowder? Where's the hole in the wall from the bullet? Or did you shoot the wall or the ceiling? Someone is crying. Are they afraid or were they shot? Can you hear the intruder over the cries? Has the intruder gone? Nothing. And far off, sirens. There's a knock at the door. You're safe. Did the gun give you the courage to run to your loved one's room, or would you have done that anyway? Did firing a warning shot scare the intruder, or would your shouts have been enough? 
Did the time it took to take the gun from the drawer slow your call to 911? What would have happened if the intruder was in your room? Could you have made it to your gun in time? Would you have pulled the trigger, even if you couldn't see clearly? Would your aim be good enough for a moving target? What if the person in the room was a loved one, afraid? Could you have made a mistake? Could you have shot the wrong person? In the chaos of the moment, with adrenaline coursing through your veins, how could you know? How could you be sure of anything? Was it a broken window in the kitchen or the living room? Was it a window that broke or a glass of water tipped by the cat? Was it an intruder at all? When you prime your mind for a heroic confrontation with a gun, you're ready to leap into action at the slightest suggestion of a sound. The most dangerous person in that situation, then, the greatest threat to you and your family, literally, in more cases than not, isn't an intruder, it's you. Does the gun make you ready for anything, or does it make everything a ready chance for accident, for violence? I lied before, I skipped ahead a bit on the road of likeliness, because there's one thing that's more likely than the unlikely chance of you using your gun against an intruder, and that's you using your gun on accident against a family member, or a family member using your gun on accident. The New York Times, just the other year, reported on one week in April when four toddlers died by guns, at their own hand. It's absolutely heartbreaking. But the sad thing is, it happens all too often. About 500 people die every year from accidental gunshot wounds. That's more than in mass shootings. It's eight times more people, actually. Guns left unattended, guns thought to be unloaded, guns that looked like toy guns, felt like toy guns, but fired for real. The danger of guns makes your home more dangerous, not less. Guns that were purchased to protect the family are ready weapons to be turned against the family. If you look at the statistics, you'd see that most firearm homicides kill men. But as the male rate has gone down since the early 90s, the female rate hasn't dropped quite as far. Many of the women on that list, that's domestic violence. Arguments elevated to the point of violence. In fact, when you look at non-fatal firearm violence by sex, you see it borne out. While victimization for men has declined dramatically, for women, it's held frustratingly steady. So we've seen a few things here, a few possible ways that make the possibility of violence against your family more likely rather than less likely. Guns that aren't there when you need them, guns that aren't protecting your family when you're out of the house, guns that might not be effective against an intruder, guns that can accidentally shoot and kill, guns that can be fired on purpose in suicide attempts, and even guns that can be used on purpose against others in the family. Oh, and guns at home kept for any reason can be taken from the home for other reasons by family members. All too often we learn that mass shooters took the guns of a father, mother, uncle, grandparent, and used them to kill others. Want to prevent mass shootings? One way is to prevent guns from falling into the hands of family members. And the best way to do that is to prevent guns from being at home in the first place. Why keep guns at home then? For protection? The best gun for protecting your family is no gun. But people are still afraid. People still want to protect themselves and their family. Well, the good news is there are tons of ways to do that and to do it well. Not backwards, not poorly, but well. Here's how we reduce gun deaths by suicide, domestic violence, and accident. We outcompete guns for protection and home safety. We make a better case. We sell a better product. One in every 286 guns sold will result in a gun injury or death within 10 years of ownership. Surely there are better, more effective alternatives. Here they are. First, let's look at the alternative of home security. Home security is like hiring a team of unarmed security guards to stand sentry over your home, outside or inside or both, at every window and door, with sensors and cameras, with locks that auto-lock if you forget, and speakers that respond if you're not home. It keeps watch. A security system doesn't accidentally shoot you in the foot. It doesn't shoot a hole in the wall or a shot that ricochets into a child. It doesn't have to fire a warning shot. Its sirens are disruptive and unmistakable. And unlike you, it doesn't fall asleep, ever. It isn't confused what the sound was in the living room. It doesn't have bad dreams or become suicidal. It stays on alert. It knows the difference between the cat knocking over a glass of water and the glass breaking in the window above the sink. 
It wakes you when there's trouble. It calls the authorities when you're away. And it's there, 24-7, ready for anything. Security systems have proven their effectiveness. In fact, a security system doesn't just help you after a break-in. It's been proven to help stop intruders before they break in. Criminals who see a security system are more likely to turn away than turn towards a home. A study of 3,000 households by the researchers Rangert and Wasilchik showed that a security system was one of the few signaling mechanisms that actually deterred crime. And quite a bit of it. The chance that a residence is burgled is nearly three times greater for homes that don't have a security system than for those that do, according to a study by Hakeem and Burke. In a study by Wright and Decker that spoke with burglars directly, three out of four of the criminals were deterred by the presence of an alarm at least sometime in the course of choosing and entering a target. And the other security precautions, deadbolt locks, a dog, uh, exterior lights, pins in window frames, and bars on the windows, those have been found to be significantly less effective than alarms. But at least they have some level of effectiveness. A gun? Having a gun in the household? No. Gun ownership, no matter how intimidating, simply had no bearing on whether an intruder selected a home as a target. In fact, since more than twice as many guns are stolen than used in self-defense, the presence of a gun could increase an intruder's interest in a home rather than decrease it. The intruder might say, hey, there's a gun I want to steal. That means when it comes to home security, a gun is good for only one thing, fighting an intruder who is already inside your house. If you're home, if you're awake, wouldn't you rather scare the intruder away before they're inside? No matter if you're home or not, security systems do that, guns don't. But home security is even more powerful than that. Some people might think that security systems don't actually reduce crime, they just displace it, shielding homes that have them and pushing crime onto those that don't. But that's not how it works. A massive study that analyzed police department, alarm permit, and census data on every residence in Newark, New Jersey, showed that there's absolutely no displacement of crime when it comes to security systems. Instead, the existence of a security system in one home means that the home next door, the one without a security system, that that one is actually safer too. It's less likely to be targeted than if nobody on the block had a security system at all. And I'm going to quote from the study here. The study was called The Impact of Home Burglar Alarm Systems on Residential Burglaries by Sung Mig Lee from the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers. Here's, here's what Lee said. Quote, it is conclusive that there's not only a statistically significant relationship and causal relationship between the increase of residential burglar alarms and the decrease of residential burglaries, but also a geographic diffusion of benefits of burglar alarms on residential burglaries. The houses with residential burglar alarms installed are less victimized and better protected than the houses without burglar alarms. Houses located next to a house with a burglar alarm installed are also less likely to be victimized and are better protected. That's pretty amazing. It means that security systems don't just help you, they help your community. They serve as a powerful shield, wider than the home they're shielding. They reduce crime rather than displacing it. And they're good at it. Damn good. How good? Security is a $25 billion business each year in the U.S. alone. That's about twice as big as the guns and ammunition industry. And for good reason. It works. That's why every company, every business, one of the first things they do is install a security system. Security systems first, not guns. Just think how crazy it would be for a company's security plan to be, hey, let's hand guns out to all of our office staff. They'll protect us and our property. What could go wrong? Of course, plenty could go wrong. It would be absurd. A gun under every desk? You don't want guns distributed like staplers and copy paper. You don't want your office workers packing heat. Maybe some of them would handle it fine, sure, but come on, everyone? Without any training at all, just hand out guns to everyone. Because remember, there's no training requirement to purchase guns. Just think how many more workplace shootings there'd be. How you'd be on edge the moment you arrived in the morning, the second anyone raised a voice or merely an objection. It wouldn't make sense for security reasons either. What happens at night when nobody's at the office? The security would just disappear. 
And yet the same logical arguments that would stop you from handing guns out to the office staff are the ones that should keep you from keeping one in your own home. It's not an effective security strategy. It's a dangerous weapon that can be mishandled or misfired. And what happens when nobody's home? The security would just disappear. Businesses know better. They know the numbers. They read the studies. Businesses have security systems built in because they know a system is better than a gun under every desk. Businesses have more at stake than the average homeowner. Where homeowners have thousands of dollars on the line, businesses have millions, maybe billions. And they have to protect employees, shoppers, clients, business partners, and data. They have to protect their reputations. So they take security seriously. They follow known best practices. They attend industry conferences and talk about ways to be better, about what might work better. So what do they do? Security systems first, first and always, then unarmed guards, then armed ones, and only if they're trained. Trained and armed security often comes in the form not of private firms, but of police. So security systems are the first choice. But what about that last choice? If police are armed, why shouldn't you arm yourself and your home with a gun, in addition to a security system? Well, even police don't have the best training when it comes to firearm use, as we've seen in officer-involved shooting after officer-involved shooting. The euphemism says it all. Officers were involved. But did they pull the trigger? Did they mean to pull the trigger? Should they have? Police forces across the world are trying to find ways to make that question moot, to mute the sound of gunfire, to defuse dangerous situations without guns altogether. Why? Because guns are blunt weapons. They're more like grenades than precision instruments for disarming threats and restoring order. Yes, sometimes it's necessary to incapacitate an unruly or dangerous person, a person who's a danger to themselves and to others. But rarely is the goal to execute that person on the spot. If you could, you'd put that dangerous person to sleep, pluck them out of the moment and into some other space where no one could be hurt. We don't have the power of magic, but we have more than just the power of gunpowder, and police are turning to these powers more and more. They're turning to tasers, to nightsticks, to mace guns, to flash grenades, to super bright lights or beams of sound. There's all sorts of ways, better ways than guns, to reduce threats. So let's take a look at what might happen if, rather than having a gun, the average homeowner packed one of these less lethal, more effective weapons. So let's look at two scenarios, both assuming you have no security system beyond the weapon. Here's scenario one. You're at home, it's night, sleeping in bed, and you hear something. You think an intruder has broken in. You see a figure moving in the dark. You throw open the locked cabinet beside your bed and reach for your gun. In this scenario, it's a gun. You fire off a shot at the shadowy figure. If it's a real intruder, you have to shoot them in the chest or in the head to truly incapacitate them. Are you that good of a shot to hit the shadow in the dark? Are you that ready to end a life? If you hit them in the arm or just graze them, will they retreat or will they lunge towards you? Even if you do hit them, most gunshots don't take a person down instantly. If the intruder has a weapon, they'll still be able to use it against you, even if they're in pain. Maybe they're more likely to use it if provoked with a shot. Your trouble doesn't end with the firing of a gun. It might just be beginning. If it's a family member, you may have made a life-altering mistake. Are you prepared to fire into a shadow without a name or a face? In the middle of your room, in the middle of the night? Are you ready to take that gamble? But let's try this again. Let's rewind that. You're at home at night, sleeping in bed, and you hear something. You think an intruder has broken in. There's a figure moving in the dark. You throw open the locked cabinet beside your bed and reach for your taser. So what's a taser? Well, it looks like a gun. It is a gun in many ways. But rather than shooting a bullet that tears through flesh, it shoots out two little probes, sharp metallic darts at 180 miles an hour, fast enough to cut through clothes and pierce the skin, but not fast enough to do lasting damage. The darts are fired on a thin wire. The wire unspools from the gun, and when the darts hit their target, you send 50,000 volts of electricity into the attacker. The electricity runs through the body, 
finding the nerves that control the intruder's motor and sensory functions. These nerves tell the muscles in the body to contract, and that's what they do. The intruder falls to the ground. They can't do anything but fall to the ground. There's no powering through it. There's no fighting it off. The taser is essentially taking control of their body, and the intruder is left helpless. If it's a real intruder, you don't have to have perfect aim. You don't have to shoot them in the chest or the head to incapacitate them. Any contact, whether in the leg or the hand, will succeed in taking them down. And they will be taken down at the first pulse of electricity. Any weapon they have will fall to the ground with them. So you'll be able to disarm them, to get past them, to get to the rest of your family, to call the police, to find safety. But let's say you fire off the taser and you miss them. Because after all, they're a shadow moving at night and they're far away and maybe your aim isn't that great or they're moving. Well, even if you miss when you fire at that target, you can use the taser as a handheld high-voltage stun gun to incapacitate them. Tasers are so effective that they've been proven to reduce the chance of bodily harm to police in an altercation by as much as 80%. This was in a study in Orange County, Florida. In fact, the mere presence of a taser can prevent confrontations. In their deployment among police in New Zealand, officers found that for every six times a taser was presented, it was discharged only once. That's right, they didn't have to fire it. And a taser doesn't kill, so there's no need to hesitate or worry about lifelong moral soul-searching or the bloody mess that guns make of your home and your life. What, though, what if it's not a real intruder? If it's a family member instead, right? We talked about this in scenario number one. Well, there's no life-altering mistake to worry about. Tasers do hurt somewhat, but their effectiveness does not rely on pain to be effective. In fact, most of the injuries from taser strikes are from falling down when the person hits the ground. In a study conducted by Wake Forest University School of Medicine, tasers resulted in just two injuries per 1,000 exposures, compared to 500 injuries and 500 deaths per 1,000 exposures of firearms. A taser misfired or fired at the wrong person will not kill. A taser misfired will not leave a family member with a permanent disability. So tell me, which handheld weapon would you rather have in that situation? A gun, which requires you hit a smaller target that might not take down the intruder, that might provoke retaliation, that could kill or permanently disable a family member, or the one that's instantly effective, eliminates the chance of retaliation, and even if fired at the wrong person, would not kill or permanently harm them? The answer is clear. It's undeniable. But maybe home protection isn't the only kind of protection you seek. Let's look at another common scenario, one we haven't addressed yet, but one that often provokes the purchase of a gun. An assault in public, on the street. So here's our scenario, scenario three. You're walking down the street. It's night, and you're alone. Half the street lights are out, and the other half are throwing house-sized shadows behind every car. The cars are all parked, all dark. It's 10 p.m. or 2 a.m., it doesn't matter. The street's empty. No traffic, no pedestrians, no open stores or restaurants, nowhere to go but where you're going. When you spot a figure on the other side of the street, the other sidewalk, and that figure spots you, you're both shadows, but this shadow crosses now to your side of the street, makes a beeline towards you, purposefully, suddenly, and fast. What do you do? You reach down and grip your gun. So here we are, scenario three, you have a gun. If it's a real assailant, you have a few choices to make. Do you hold the gun out in the dim slant of a streetlight and hope the sight of it sends a message? Do you need to fire off a warning shot to prove you're serious? Or do you shoot at the assailant? You have to decide. Is it bright enough for the gun to be seen? Is the threat serious enough to fire the gun in warning? Or would that be too serious? Will it wake the neighborhood? Turn this into a crime scene all on its own because you now have fired a gun? If you shoot in warning, where do you shoot? Up at the sky? Are there buildings up there that you could hit? Could you hit someone in one of those windows? This warning shot business is tricky. If you look at where you're pointing the gun for your warning shot, which you should be doing, you, you're not looking at the assailant. You're taking your eyes off the threat, and that's a bad idea. Both seem like a bad idea. Firing without looking or looking away while you fire away from your assailant. 
But what if you fired at the assailant? That would send all the message in the world, and it could end the world for this stranger. But would you be justified in it? Would the crime scene investigators, the flashing lights and evidence bags, would it all agree with you? That this shadow walking fast was a threat? Or would you be arrested on the spot? Even before they arrived, what would happen? If you really wanted to incapacitate the assailant, you'd have to shoot him in the chest or the head. If you only injured him, he could still hurt you. Or he could just cry and scream in pain. Would you call 911 or would you run? But if you killed him, what would you do then? With a hot body on the pavement and the ring of gunfire in your ear, your life, your world, for at least the next year, would be irrevocably changed. So maybe you just stand there then. You hope for the assailant to resolve and to focus, for your gun to be seen and the moment to pass. You grip the handle tight, waiting, afraid of every outcome as he gets closer and closer. But let's rewind. You're walking down the street at night alone, nobody around, nowhere to run, and a figure crosses toward you, moving fast, purposeful, aiming unmistakable, it seems, for you. You reach down and grip your pepper gun. What's a pepper gun? Well, it looks like a regular gun, looks just as capable and terrifying, but in many ways, it's more capable. Because it's non-lethal, it's ready to be used in more situations and with less hesitation. Forget those little hand bottles of pepper spray. Pepper guns fire a blinding stream of chemicals at an assailant. And from as far as 20 feet away, pepper guns are filled with chemicals, oleoresin capsicum, and a propellant like nitrogen. Aimed at the face, the chemicals are an inflammatory agent. Since it's a spray, it disperses out from the gun in a wider cone than a bullet, making anything that hits the face hit the eyes. Missed the first time? Pull the trigger again. Or again. Or again. Keep trying as long as it takes. Each canister of a pepper gun has 10 shots to ensure you nail your target. And if targeting's a problem for you, there's a, an included light for accuracy. If you need more canisters, you can use them. They're small and light, easy to carry, and easy to reload. The moment the chemicals hit the assailant's eyes and nose, they go to work. Eyelids slam shut. The nose and throat fill with mucus. Breathing gets so difficult that the assailant bowls over, falling to his knees. But the chemicals don't just work on the eyelids. They're so potent that they dilate the capillaries of the eyes themselves. So even if he manages to get his eyes open, he can't see a thing. Temporary blindness and a kind of burning, bubbling pain persist for 20 to 40 minutes. Pepper guns are so effective, they're used by police and the military, and they work against rabid dogs, even bears. In fact, bear spray that people use when they're hiking in Alaska is actually a watered-down version of pepper gun spray. Oh, and rather than costing $500 like a handgun, a pepper gun costs just $50. You can buy it on Amazon. You can get it delivered to your house. What does the decision tree look like when you have a pepper gun? Well, it's a lot simpler. The first option, intimidation, is still there. Pepper guns come in a variety of colors, so you can have one in black. It looks like a gun. Maybe then the sight of it and a shout of warning is enough. But if the assailant can't see it or keeps coming towards you, forget about the warning shot. These guns don't make the noise a bullet would make, so a warning shot's out of the question. But what's next, then, if the assailant keeps approaching? Well, with a real gun, remember, you had two choices at that point. Wait to make sure the assailant really is a threat, or fire at the assailant. Fire somewhere lethal, like the head or the chest, or somewhere not, like the arm or the leg. Fire and hope for the best. Hope that you're not making a terrible, life-altering mistake. But with the pepper gun, the choice is easy. If a threat is approaching, you pull the trigger. You fire. Right at the face. Temporary blindness, searing pain and coughing, lurching, breathing, all of it knocks the assailant down and gives you time to escape. At least 20 minutes of blindness to escape and call the police. Pepper guns are 100% painful and 100% blinding when they strike the eyes. Nobody can fight through it, not even a bear. But they're also 100% non-toxic, with no lifelong side effects. Why? because the chemicals inside are essentially concentrated acid from hot peppers, natural agents that neutralize threats without killing or permanently harming them, 
weapons without the paperwork, without regret. I mean, just think, after you fire at the assailant, you don't have to worry about the crime scene because the only crime committed was by the assailant. There's no blood on the pavement, no interrogation of your motives, no crying family members. In all likelihood, you can just go home and tell the cops on the phone what happened. Your life isn't turned upside down. You can turn instead back to your life and put the incident behind you. Yes, when it comes to neutralizing threats, whether the threat of someone entering your home or the threat of someone assaulting you on the pavement, these more modern weapons are not only clear and compelling alternatives, they are, quite simply, better ones. But don't just take my word for it. Take the Supreme Court's word. That's right. In March 2016, the Supreme Court affirmed for the first time that tasers and pepper guns are protected under the Second Amendment, just like traditional guns. So don't think that by getting one of these tools, you're somehow getting something less than a firearm. Under the law, these weapons are protected just the same. And as the Supreme Court said, they could actually prove more effective. In a concurrent opinion penned by Samuel Alito alongside Clarence Thomas, they wrote, quote, A weapon is an effective means of self-defense only if one is prepared to use it. Countless people, they wrote, may have reservations about using deadly force, whether for moral, religious, or emotional reasons, or simply out of fear of killing the wrong person. I am not prepared, they wrote, to say that a state may force an individual to choose between exercising that right to bear arms and following her conscience, at least where both can be accommodated by a non-lethal weapon already in widespread use across the nation. End quote. So there they are. The Supreme Court making the argument for non-lethal weapons because they're effective, saying non-lethal weapons overcome moral, religious, emotional problems with the right to bear arms, and that they are indeed protected under the right to bear arms. More than 200,000 people have tasers and stun guns and are not afraid to use them in the United States. And even more have pepper guns, because when combined with a home security system, these personal measures provide a far better measure of protection for you and your family. Tasers and pepper guns mean the same or better personal security without the threat of death, injury, or accident. They mean the same or better personal security without the chance for lethal domestic abuse. Yeah, that spike for women in the gun deaths charts, that's gone. Tasers and pepper guns mean the same or better personal security without the chance for a family member or family friend stealing and using it against their coworkers, their fellow students, or their fellow citizens. And most powerfully, tasers and pepper guns mean the same or better personal security without the chance for suicide. And I can't stress this enough. If everyone who had a firearm today had instead a just as effective non-lethal weapon, in fact, a more effective non-lethal weapon, a taser or a pepper gun, we could reduce the 21,000 firearm suicides in this country down to zero. I'm not assuming that these people won't be suicidal. No, they may still have suicidal thoughts and take action on those thoughts, but they take action with less lethal tools at their disposal. So they'd have the same suicide completion rate as the rest of the population. When someone tries to attempt suicide with a gun, it results in a death 83% of the time. When someone tries to attempt suicide by other means, it results in a death 2% of the time. 83% with a gun, 2% without it. Guns are literally more than 40 times as likely to result in a death. So what does that mean for the 24,606 people who attempt suicide each year with a gun? Well, if they use a gun, that means that 21,000 of them will die. But if they didn't have a gun, if instead they used a non-lethal self-defense weapon, those 24,606 suicide attempts would result in 492 deaths. Compare. Today's world with guns 21,000 suicide deaths. A world with non-lethal alternatives to guns, 492 suicide deaths. So to be clear, if we replaced every gun with a non-lethal weapon, we wouldn't prevent all 21,000 deaths, but we would prevent 20,508 of them. And most who survive an attempt, the majority, in fact, 
don't go on to try again. So, if you're looking for security, for a way to protect yourself and your family, install a home security system. Looking for a way to stop an intruder or an assailant in their tracks? Get a non-lethal personal weapon. If protection is all you're looking for, how could you possibly choose anything else? So if we want to prevent deaths by guns, the best thing we can do is not to put light restrictions on them. The best thing we can do is to out-compete them. Don't tell people they can't protect themselves. Show them ways they can protect themselves better with these proven alternatives. For every person who wants to buy a gun, if we can convince them to do one of these things instead, we can take one more step towards reducing violence. Every 36 people we convince to use an alternative to a gun, we stop a firearm assault. Every 87 people we convince to use an alternative to a gun, we stop a gun suicide. Every 149 people we convince, we stop someone from being accidentally shot. Every 154 people, we stop someone from committing a gun murder. And every 3,333 people we convince to use an alternative to a gun, we stop someone from being accidentally killed. How do we make this case? Here are four ideas. First, we can encourage new home builders to make security systems a standard feature, one as ubiquitous as door locks. Today, security is an addition, one that the homeowner or tenant has to want in order to get. But what if security wasn't an afterthought or an add-on? What if it was built into the design? If it was there by default? There are several things that could be done. Beyond the standard sensors at every window and door, you could place windows at a higher elevation, install shrubs at the base of entry and exit points, and reinforce both windows and doors without making them look tacky or out of place. You build alarms and motion-activated floodlights flush into the sides of awnings and cornices. Yes, just as security has become a standard feature on cars and biometrics a standard on phones, we could begin to build security and safety features standard into our homes, into the architecture. By what mechanism? Why would this happen? Well, laws could be passed requiring it, just as laws are passed for building codes requiring homes in Florida to withstand wind damage or homes in California to withstand earthquakes. But beyond laws, local neighborhoods and planned communities could build home security directly into their planning. If not laws or localities, home builders themselves could recognize security as a selling point. And perhaps they're afraid to do so, thinking that to even suggest the need for security is to concede that the home is vulnerable and located in a vulnerable neighborhood. But this kind of thinking's folly. Security isn't just something people seek when they fear what's outside. It's something people seek when they value what's inside. If you're a home builder building homes to house the values inside, providing security should be as second nature as providing shelter. They are, in many ways, one and the same. And if all these mechanisms fail, home buyers can demand it themselves, demand that their homes protect them rather than they protecting their homes. After all, nobody ever built a fortress to protect the fortress. The fortress itself is the protection. Home buyers and renters can be clear about what they need and picky about what they choose. Real estate magazines and newspaper sections can take up the cause, and why shouldn't they? Fear sells. I can hear the local TV news reporter already. Could your home be vulnerable to attack? Don't miss the shocking report tonight at 11. So that's way one. Here's a second way. Get home security and non-lethal weapons makers to work together. After all, people who buy a security system may still want to feel the added sense of security of a weapon in their hand. And the people who want to carry a personal weapon out on the town probably want protection from harm at home too, right? By working together, these two industries could target the gun market for profits. And there are serious profits to be had. Current gun protection buyers tend to spend far more on firearms than the average customer spends on home security or non-lethal weapons. Why not take some of that market? Why not directly compete with firearms? Imagine, a cheap and effective bundled security package. Maybe it comes with an ecosystem of non-lethal weapons, a taser in the bedroom, a stun gun in the kitchen, and three to four pepper guns for being out and about. One for the car, one for the office, one for your bag. The brand message could be so strong. Maximize safety, minimize threats for a fraction of the cost, and without the worry. 
but don't just take the industry's word for it. Our third way to promote competing alternatives is to create an association of former gun owners who are security converts. People who used to keep a gun in their home or on their belt, but have now thought better of it. This could attract people of all stripes, from those who have lost a loved one to gun accidents, to those who accidentally shot themselves in the foot. What could such an association do? They could make the case for safety and security in a more personal way, without people questioning their motives. They could hold rallies, partner with cities and municipalities, take out booths and county fairs, pass out brochures, make commercials, sit in on TV roundtables, panel discussions, and go on the speaking circuit. Oh, and they could recruit new members. Maybe they could even offer discounts or subscriptions to home security offerings. They could print member magazines, organize member activities and retreats, really create something that advances the science of security at home and in public. Yes, they could commission studies, host conferences, and promote best practices. They could become not the anti-NRA, but the alternate NRA. Call them the Personal Security Association, PSA, a kind of real-life PSA, sending a public service announcement to all who seek security and personal protection. There's something better out there, something safer out there, and we'll prove it. And for those who are no longer on the fence, for the 50 million U.S. adults who already own guns for security, what do we do for them? How do we reach them? Well, the association will surely have an impact, but we can make it easier. And that takes us to the fourth way to promote alternatives, offering trade-in programs to gun owners who want to trade the danger of guns for the safety of home security and non-lethal weapons. This should be a one-for-one trade. You trade an ineffective and dangerous gun for an effective and safe alternative, at no cost at all. Not a penny. Because guns are usually more expensive than these alternatives, it shouldn't be a hard trade. Except for the question of what to do with all the guns traded in. The best option, of course, would be to remove the guns from the market. Fewer guns reduces the chance for accident and death. When Australia had its gun buyback program, many of the guns were simply destroyed. But there are other options. For example, if it's the association administering the trade, maybe they could work to sell the guns to the military. So, what's the solution to guns for those who seek protection and safety? To provide a better alternative. To convince them that there's something better already out there. Security systems are better at protecting homes and buildings than guns. Every business out there already knows it. And non-lethal weapons are better at stopping assailants than guns. Police units already know this. And all we have to do is make the case clear, make the solutions compelling, and make it easy for people to choose something that's not only better for them and their family, but better for everyone, better for their community. I can hear the detractors. I can hear people out there, though, saying, that's great and all, sure, but, but what about people who own guns for something other than protection? For hunting, or, yes, for sport. What about people who don't give a damn about protecting, but just enjoy guns? Well, I think we can find an answer in the same way. Don't ban it, better it. If we can show a better alternative, we don't need to force it. So what's a better alternative for sports owners? That's our next episode. Until then, that's it for Polylog. Thanks again for sitting in with me or walking or whatever you're doing, driving, to listen to this new special segment that we're, this series we're excited to bring to you as we spend time with our new baby boy. And thank you, of course, as always, for subscribing to Polylog. As we mentioned in one of our previous episodes, Polylog as a critique of the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist will return with a new exciting format in the weeks ahead. But until then, I'm so incredibly excited to continue sharing this project with you. I started on this effort over six years ago, and you, our loyal Polylog listeners, are the first to see it. You can access a text version with images and sourcing at solvinguns.org, where you'll also find a video version that I produced. If you have a friend or someone you know who cares about these issues, please consider pointing them to solvinguns.org, where they can read, watch, or listen to the project. I'll continue sharing. Next week, look for episode two, where we dive deep into ways to reduce violence 
among individuals who primarily own their gun for sport and hunting. If you have any feedback on this or anything polylog related or any questions at all, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can follow me on Twitter at bstidle. You can follow Naomi on Twitter at Soto Naomi underscore. And you can follow the show at polylogcast. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk with you next week. Bye.